Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Uh, God in heaven above, maker of all the earth, we bring before you concerns of all the earth. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Egypt, and we ask, Father, that you would give them boldness, courageousness, and comfort to lift high the name of Jesus Christ, to fear no man. We pray that cultural pressures and political pressures, familial pressures, would be no obstacle in their hearts to making Jesus known. We pray, too, for the people of Afghanistan. We pray, Father, for their physical safety, as a majority of them are feeling threatened and terrified by the Taliban. We pray more for their spiritual health. We pray, Father, for a revival, uh, a gospel movement in the nation of Afghanistan that you would turn hearts to Jesus Christ, even hearts of leaders in the Taliban, that you would break that power by the power of the gospel. We pray for their salvation so that they may not face your just and fair judgment, even as we escaped your just and fair judgment on that destined day. And Father, we pray that we would have a peace, a small sliver of the boldness and the courageousness of so many of our brothers and sisters in these places that are very difficult to hold up the name of Jesus. Forgive us for our weakness in testifying to Jesus' name and strengthen us to be courageous in our relative freedom, to make much of him. Would you turn our hearts to your word and help us to grasp it, to love it, and to know you better through it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, turn to Genesis chapter 1. This should be the easiest one I've ever had you find. You can turn, you can click, you can swipe, you can tap, you can do whatever you need to do, but the easiest thing actually might be to just open a Bible and turn about three pages over to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verse 1, down through chapter 2, verse 3, as we start a short series through what's basically chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Genesis this fall. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the land sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said that let there be lights in the expanse of the, of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over, the, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. 
and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This has to be one of the most challenging passages I've chosen to preach. And, and it's not challenging because it's particularly hard to understand or, or to figure out the main themes. Those are typically the reasons that make a passage hard to preach or teach. But this passage, I think, is challenging for three very different reasons. First, it's challenging because we know the story. And not only do we know the story and its biggest themes, but those themes have become so ingrained in our culture that we take them, we take them for granted. So I think our familiarity breeds contempt. But the early chapters of Genesis, and, and this passage in particular, were extremely subversive to the surrounding cultures that gave them birth, to the people that we would eventually call Israelites. And I think that if we let them, they are subversive to our culture as well. But how do I break through my own intellectual ease to let it subvert me, let alone you? Second, it's challenging because in the last 100 years or so, as the theory of evolution gained traction, an intellectual war broke out that pitted science against religion, with the early chapters of Genesis and this passage in particular often on the front lines. Depending on how you were raised or what circles you've run in, it might be very difficult to hear the book of Genesis outside the noise of that debate. And I know that if I don't mention this issue or that problem or this little nuance, that it will be some who will think I'm missing the point or I'm going soft in my theology. But the message of Genesis, the creation and the flood, when we get to that, are not written as scientific literature. That, that doesn't mean they don't say true things. In fact, I believe that everything that's written here is true, completely true. But do we know what it says? If we read it like a science textbook, I'm convinced we will miss most of what it has to say. And it, that means we will miss out some, on some very important, very deep, and very profound truths. So I'm going to largely stay away from the science versus the Bible debates in this message and in this series because my job isn't to teach about science, but to preach the Word of God. If we let God be God and let Him speak as He wills and hear Him, we will be blessed. But I am acutely aware of the minefield I am about to enter. Third, 
This is a challenging passage to preach because it is absolutely jam-packed with ideas. I suspect there are at least a hundred ideas by way of direct statement or indirect statement or implication in these 24 verses. Maybe quite a bit more than that. Some less important ones may be obvious, and some more important ones might be buried a bit and require some holy archaeology to dust off the centuries of cultural assumptions and language barriers to bring them to the surface for our enjoyment. And so which of those do we need to hear the most pressingly, and which ones will give you the most complete picture of this passage? Those aren't always easy questions, and maybe... One day the Lord will see fit that I can return to this passage and and turn it into an entire series, maybe a a lengthy series on just this passage. But the the breadth and depth of the ideas in this short passage are truly a challenge. I say all that, I hope not as an excuse for a poor performance, but I want you to see a little bit of what I see, that this is a a rich text of Scripture, arguably one of the most important in all of Scripture. It might be the most important in Scripture. I mean, the high point of the biblical story and of all of history has to be Jesus' death and resurrection. But we have scores of detailed descriptions of those events, both of what happened and what they mean. But as for creation... There are a few others, but they largely allude to and build off this passage. They're not independent witnesses in the same way that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and Paul and others could write of the resurrection. So I will not do this passage justice. A lot of that is my failings, but a lot of that is also necessary and intentional. My goal, my overarching theme, I guess, is to show you a glimpse of this truth, that the God who exists, the God who made us, is overwhelmingly more glorious than all the competitors this world has to offer. And I hope to do that by by walking through this text, like, like, like taking a nature hike, through God's creation, and and, and pointing out uh, the beauties along the way. Some more obvious, some less so. Some we find by being still and letting them come to us, and, and some of them we have to get down on the ground and sort of pry through the underbrush, pull aside some leaves, avoid the poison ivy, and find little things. There are at least 16 things that I'm going to try to highlight. And I know I just scared you. But that's distilling from at least 100. Um, I'm not going to try to number them. We're just going to take a stroll together. The beginning of this passage of the Bible as a whole is famous. Even atheists, even people from various other faiths can recite it word for word, right? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. But where do we begin with that? 
as a sentence, it is a profound and resolute declaration. It is a line in the sand. It is a demarcation point. This much is true, and you must know it. And it leaps off the page within the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning. Period. The scientific philosophers might suggest that this is the beginning of time itself. After all, time appears to be a property of our physical universe. Far from being constant, time ebbs and flows in ways that we don't usually even notice. But Genesis isn't concerned about the metaphysics of time. It is the beginning of everything that concerns us, of everything we could appreciably understand in some small way. It is also the story, the beginning of the story of God's interest in us and connection to us and relationship with us, we who are human beings. And that story begins with a creation. In the beginning, God. Who? Was it the Babylonian favorite Marduk? No. How about Namu, who created the world from the waters? No. Anu, the sky god? What about the Egyptian Amun? No, this is merely God. In a world filled with gods, some cultures at the time having hundreds or even thousands of them, and a world that was filled with stories about the creation, the Genesis story stands out. Which God did this? God. The God. He is the only one mentioned and the only one that will be mentioned. And I'll say more on that in a minute. The God of the Bible's teaching has a name. We're introduced to it in chapter 2. Yahweh. But consistently, this name, Yahweh, is most connected to God's people. God's own people know him as Yahweh, but beyond the borders of his people, he is simply God, the God, sometimes the most high God. He is supreme. He is without rival. He has a name, but he does not need a name because he is one of a kind. In fact, his name, Yahweh, means something close to he is. As if this name itself points to the fact that he is the existing one, as opposed to all the non-existent pretenders. In the beginning, God created The word is bara, and it's fascinating that in all of the Bible, this word is only used of God's activities. Only God baras. Only God is God. And what does he create? He creates the heavens and the earth. That's a figure of speech called a merism. You take two extremes, and you use them to represent everything in between. If I said that a politician campaigned from east to west, you'd know that I meant he campaigned across the entire expanse of the country. When I talk 
about uh, somebody running from here to Timbuktu, which references a city deep in the heart of Mali in West Africa that seems remote and mysterious. We know that it means a long, long, long distance of travel. If you worked day and night, it means 24 hours in a row. We hope that means metaphorically. But the expression heavens and earth is the same way. It points to the heights of the expanses above the heads of human beings and the depths of the ground beneath our feet, and everything in between. In short, God created everything. He created the universe. If an ancient man might look up on a dark Near Eastern sky, everything he could see, anything in it and beyond, was created by God. And if he looked down and saw anything, it was created by God. That was not the belief of the regional civilizations of the ancient Near East. At least all of the other ancient creation myths of the time that we have unearthed, they differ, but there is a consistent theme that there was some original stuff, and that stuff was taken by a god or goddess, maybe multiples of them, and and it was shaped and fashioned into something like what we know. So those myths start with something like verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep an undifferentiated, muddled, chaotic mess. Different cultures described it differently, but the general thrust was the same. But Genesis 1 says, no way. There is no eternal matter, no eternal waters, no eternal earth, no eternal chaos. There was just God in the beginning, and he created everything that was to come. And so, with just seven words in Hebrew, this little verse upends the myths of the ancient Near East and, and many of the myths of our own time as well. There would appear to be just one God. He is distinct from the universe insofar as he has made it. There is nothing eternal apart from God because everything had its beginning in the beginning. And whatever other little gods there may have been, and we'll say something about that. This God, this big God, was before them, and he did not need them. And any beings that inhabit the earth or dwell in the heavens above, no matter how mundane or glorious, those beings were just in the middle of everything God created. This God, this God that is spoken of is above all, beyond all, and behind all. The next verse, as we said, does point to some sort of mess. The phrase without form and void is a rhyming pair. Tohu vabohu, 
So it's sometimes been likened to like an English phrase. We do this in a lot of languages, like hodgepodge. One scholar translates it, total chaos. It has no direction. It's empty. It's not useful for anything. It exists in darkness. But this darkness is not evil because God's spirit is there, hovering. And the word spirit can be translated breath. It can be translated wind, depending on the context. It's hard to know which sense is meant here. And I think it's a bit ambiguous because there's a sense in which all of those meanings are present. Wind is often a picture of the activity of God's spirit in the Bible. And as the God who created everything, anyway, the wind is his. It belongs to him. It is God's wind. There's something poetic about the idea that God's also breath is over those deep waters. As if his voice might call out at any moment. And indeed, it will. But there's also little doubt that God's spirit is also personality. And the God who is above all creation, who owns all of creation, who barad it, is present with his creation. The gods of the ancient world were often very much a part of this world in ways that are less than flattering. But there were a few ancients who had a different view, a, a view held by many of us moderns, that God is distant God is far away, unable to be grasped, uninterested in being involved. But the biblical picture, from the very beginning, throws away the deism of John Locke and Voltaire and Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. It challenges those of us who say we believe in God, but whose lives are not particularly shaped by that belief. We try to be moral people as we ourselves see morality. But the idea that God would be present, that he would be here, that he would be watching, that he would be working right now, that idea doesn't exist for many of us. And so it does not change us. But the Bible says otherwise. It says that God is present, and he has been since the universe came into being. In fact, we might say that one of the most dominant themes of the Bible is the question of how a God who desires to be near to his people without destroying them in his glorious, righteous justice can make that happen. So God is not far away, but neither is he on the same plane as us, like those who have believed that the gods live out some sort of cosmic soap opera between two worlds. Nor can he be identified with the universe, like the pantheists and the panentheists would teach. He's separate from the world. He made the world above it, but present in it. God the only God, defies the boxes of both ancient and modern man. Let's look at that first day 
Beginning in verse 3, we have what's known as the, the first day, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, this day, the first day, is important in the text because it shows us how God goes about forming and fashioning the world. And the ideas that we have in these verses keep coming back over the next five days. Not all of them on every day, but all of them on some days. God speaks. His hovering breath takes form into two words. Yehior. And creation obeys his voice. There is light. Like a master savoring his artistry, God recognizes its goodness. And then he separates it from darkness. What does that mean? We usually think of light as the opposite of dark. And elsewhere in the Bible, light pushes out darkness. The two can't coexist in the same place. But somehow at this point, primordial time, these two were intermixed, and so God separates them out. And this idea of separation becomes an important theme in the chapter. God separates light and dark. In verse 6, he separates two watery places. In verse 9, he separates land from water. But then separation is not quite enough. God goes further. And he gives them distinguishing marks. In, vor- in vor- verse 14, he distinguishes day and night with the presence of the sun and the moon and the stars. And we see other implicit marks on creation. God creates different categories of vegetation that are distinct. Cherry trees don't produce corn and wheat won't produce soybeans. God puts swarming things in the seas. He puts flying things in the skies. These are broad categories. They're not linked to scientific terminology. But they are distinctions. They are separations, as God sees fit. He distinguished both of those from from the land animals. And and from the land animals, he distinguishes the domesticated ones and the wild ones, and then the, the earth's own swarming things, whether bugs or lizards or rodents. And separate from all of those, he makes mankind. And importantly, He distinguishes between male and female in fashioning mankind, and we'll come back to that. But God is giving order to creation. He's taking the hodgepodge, and he's differentiating it into distinct things that served varied but valuable purposes. He is a God of order and deliberation, of planning and purpose. And then in verse 5, God names the light and darkness. This naming becomes a sub-theme of the chapter. And without a doubt, naming is a prerogative of ownership. You can name your car. You can name your kids. You can name a city if you found it. But you won't name someone else's stuff, most likely. If you try to do that, that would be considered a pretty big power move and probably not welcome. But God demonstrates his ownership 
and his rule of creation by naming. He also names the heavens or the sky, the earth and the water. He names the big things, the fundamental things. We'll see next week that he gives humanity the opportunity to name small things. But if the big things belong to him, so do the little things that exist inside the big things. And finally, there's evening and there's morning the first day. That's a pattern that's given uh, six times over the six days. And, and, and maybe that's just how God did it. Uh, maybe that is just how God did it. I don't have a, uh, a philosophical problem with the idea of God creating in six normal days. And I will be quite content to find out that's the case, if indeed it is the case, when I meet Jesus face to face. But I also don't have a philosophical problem with thinking it took quite a bit longer than six normal days. It seems like the biggest picture is that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, a God of wisdom and planning. He's also a God who is immensely powerful. Nothing stands in the way of his creation endeavor. And yet he's not in any rush either, is he? You know, some ancient believers, Jews, Christians, were concerned. They were concerned that it would take God six days to do something. Couldn't he do it all at once? but we get the sense of a God who is entirely in control. He's not worried about running out of time. He's in total control. I'm not a paleoclimatologist. I'm not a physicist. I'm not a chemist. I'm not a geologist. I'm just a Bible guy. But if we take the Bible seriously, we get a picture of a very unique special God. But, you know, we have these, these days here, and, and, and it might make us wonder, what do we do with that? So I'll tempt fate, and I'll, and I'll press in just a little bit, because I think there's some sights to see along the path. Did God create the earth in six 24-hour periods? That's highly unlikely. How do I know? Because the earth actually spins once every 23 hours, 56 minutes, and approximately 4.0916 seconds, with all evidence suggesting it's slowing down. So they weren't 24 hours. That's too long. That's too long. You're short-changing God. But again, the Bible is not a science textbook. How long is a day when there's no sun, no moon, no constellations in the sky, all of the things that mark the time, the days, and the seasons? things that weren't created until the fourth day? How is there evening and morning without rotation around the sun or a moon revolving around the earth? And while some individuals have devised all sorts of speculations about how this could be, the Bible simply doesn't tell us. The idea of a day-night cycle without sun or moon or stars would have been just as absurd for an ancient person as for us, and maybe more so. They relied on it a lot more. 
There have been scholars who think that all of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, or, or most of it are a poem. That's really going too far, I think. But there are poetic elements throughout the text. I've mentioned a couple already. And this text reads quite differently from Genesis 2 and 3. And those three read quite differently from the rest of 1 through 11. And so there's a sense in which we're reading almost a different genre here. Something fantastic is happening. And only fantastic language can capture its majesty. Sometimes we get hung up on the idea of reading the Bible literally. But we all know that Solomon did not think his bride's teeth looked like sheep or her hair like goats. And when Paul talks about the church like a body, like a living organism, and suggests that a foot will not dare say, because I am a hand, I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, we don't think to ourselves, ah, there must be a foot language. Perhaps only other feet understand it. It's so mysterious, but that's what God's Word says. Now, those interpretations might take the Bible literally, but they don't take the Bible seriously. What we want is not literal Bible study, but serious Bible study. We want to get at what is the Bible actually saying and take that seriously. Treat it like it matters and take it to be true. The poetic features and literary flourishes of this passage, as well as the majesty of what it's talking about, things arguably too majestic for human words. Suggest to me that there's something more going on than days of 23 hours, 56 minutes, and a touch over four seconds. Consider the fact that on the first day, God creates light and separates day and night. And then on day four, God creates astronomical lights to give order and structure to that day and night. On day two, God separates the sky from the waters. And on day five, God fills the skies and the waters. On day three, God separates the waters from the earth. And on day six, God creates the animals and human beings to fill the earth. So each of these first three days is paralleled in the second three days. First, God separates out the fundamentals of our universe and world, and then he distinguishes and fills those spaces. Now again, maybe that is uh, simply quite literally the way God did it. And I have no problem with that. I have no issue with that. But I think we can run the danger of missing the bigger picture of what kind of God we serve, what kind of God we are called to obey, what kind of God did all of this. This is about God, not so much about us or the world. Let's look at the latter part of this creation story. Drop down with me to the fourth day. 
It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. The reason I want to stop there for a moment is that it's a strange passage, isn't it? Because we've already talked about the sort of incongruency between having day and night without sun and moon and stars. So in that sense, it's sort of expected. Like, we've got to address this, right? We've got a day and we've got a night and we've got no sun, we've got no moon. So tell us about those things, God. But, but you see how indirectly they are addressed. They rule over this day-night cycle. But they do that by providing organization to our daily lives. Signs, seasons, days, years, the rhythms of our lives. There's a sense in which, yes, they are good, and so they please God, and that is ultimate. But also, they exist to serve us. Even the animals and the plants live by their light and heat. Some animals navigate their way around the world by the sky. And they're served by these nameless lights. We might expect the lights to get names. God has named other things. And we love to name things in the sky, don't we? The sun, the moon, Venus, Uranus, Alpha Centauri B. We're getting a little more boring as we go on. But curiously, we're, we're only told about the greater and the lesser light. Why? It's hard not to think of the religion of the ancient Near East and many religions across human history. The Mesopotamian god Shamash shares his name with the word for sun. It's an equivalent to the Hebrew word Shemesh. Later in the book of Genesis, many of you know Abraham, Abram at the time, would leave his hometown of Ur. And the patron deity of the ancient city of Dur was Ur was the moon god Sin. His wife's name, his consort's name, well, Abram's wife's name was Sarai, and we think, quite likely, that that was a cognate, was related to the name of the moon god's wife, Sharahitu. In Genesis 1, these lights have no names to be worshipped by. They're simply made by the god. They were made for the God, and they provide service to the God's other creations. Now, we might think of this as silly myth-making by these ancient people, 
But a recent survey found that over 60% of Gen Z and millennials, a lot of you all, believe that astrological signs accurately represent their personalities. Tarot card readers build off of these astrological symbols in their decks. And, and, and according to such thought, these astral bodies rule the universe and our fates. But the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says that these things do the exact bidding of God on high. They are merely his creatures. They have no personality. They have no control. They move at his will. And their movement sets up seasons and times that benefit us. They may be a navigational aid. And in that way, they serve us by the will of God, not the other way around. It would be foolish to look to them for advice. More than that, it would be a denial of the God. Drop down to the fifth day, and we read, And God said, Let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. Lock in on the great sea creatures for a moment. That's very unspecific. It, of course, could mean whales or crocodiles or pleosaurs. And I'm sure if an ancient Hebrew saw any of those, he would say, that is a great sea creature. But in the religions of that time and place, there was a sea monster who was a god, who was a threat and a rival to other gods, not to be messed with and very dangerous. The, well, best, the, the most well-known of those for ancient Israelites may have been the Sumerian goddess Tiamat, who helped create the world in their myth. But rather than the sea monster being a threat to the god, let alone having any rule or role in creation, she is just one of many great sea creatures and other swarming creatures that inhabit the oceans and seas because God made her to do that. She's nameless, and nothing compares to the Creator. Of course, mythical sea creatures have been part of human lore for ages. Leviathan, Kraken, Bessie, the Lake Erie monster. They're often sources of terror, fearsome beasts in the untamed and unpredictable raging sea, but whatever is out there, the Christian can be sure it was made by God. It does as he pleases. And so it is no threat to God. And here's what that means for us. For those who know God, there are no monsters out there to be afraid of. Maybe we all have a tendency to personify our fears, or at least to animate them. But no matter how horrible, how monstrous a situation, 
seems, no matter how awful or monstrous a person seems to be, no matter what might be lurking around that corner or under those waters, God is in control of it. God is sovereign over it. God made it, and he rules the universe by his word. Those aren't worth being afraid of. God is worth being afraid of. Anyone who can slay the kraken with a word is a truly terrifying being. But for those who worship him, he is our protection and our strength. True power drives out fear. And the God of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is truly powerful. But let's move on. We have a few more ideas we need to explore here. Two big ones with each having a couple little subpoints. On the sixth day, God creates animals, animals of all sorts. And then we come to maybe the second most famous words in this passage. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We could spend a series just in that and the next couple verses but we'll have to be content with just part of one sermon today. God speaks deliberately about creating human beings. There is a play on words in the ancient Hebrew. The word Adam can mean mankind. It can mean a male human being, and it can be used as a personal name, particularly for the first male named Adam. And that works well with the English word man, although we have a tendency to call him Adam instead of just calling him man with a capital M. But, but here, the reference is clearly to human beings as a group, mankind, because we read God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So, as far as Genesis 1 is concerned, man is synonymous with male and female. Many implications there. First, we are created in God's image. Nothing else is said to be created in God's image. We are the last thing said to have been created, which makes human beings sort of a capstone of God's creation. We are special. We are unique. There is something about us that resembles God in a way that no other creature is said to. And because of that, human life is particularly precious, particularly valuable. Any harm, any harm, physical, verbal, psychological, done to a human being is an offense against the image of God. And so we protect human life in all its forms because it is a reflection of the creator himself. But it's not enough to say with the Wiccans, if it harm no one, do as one wills, nor is it enough to agree with Hippocrates that we simply do no harm, because the opposite is true as well, or the, 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 that's probably the wrong way to say, but because human beings are the reflections of the, the creator, they are owed something. It's not that we just shouldn't do things to them, it's that we owe them something. They are owed respect, 
They are owed honor. They are owed good. The Old Testament law, which Jesus himself cites, demands a positive response. Love your neighbor as yourself. So our, our neighbor is due more than no harm. Our neighbor is due love because he or she is a reflection of the Almighty. Second principle from these words, if our unique value is our creation in God's image, then we have to acknowledge there is no value difference between males and females. Both are made equally in God's image. And any culture that sees men as better than women has missed God's mark. Any notion that women are better than men has missed the mark. And that crops up in culture in so many different weird ways, but it is unacceptable in God's economy. A third principle. Male and female are distinct but compatible. Man is of one kind. But within that one kind are two types, we might say in modern parlance, genders. They balance each other. They pair off of each other. And God's next words, that they be fruitful and that they multiply and fill the earth, reinforce the idea that gender is inextricably tied to reproduction. Male and female come together to carry out God's command. And we'll say some more about that next week. But to even have this conversation is controversial in ways that it would not have been just eight or ten years ago. And, and I cannot, you guys will, will hang me if I go in a lengthy aside here at 1154 uh, about transgenderism or gender identity or gender dysmorphia or gender nonconformism, let alone the vast array of intersex conditions. However, because it was a part of God's created order, and specifically part of his creating humanity in his image, we have to acknowledge what we might call a binary gender priority. And what I mean by that is that there are two genders, male and female. That idea was the pattern from the beginning. It was prior. It has priority. It's the normal. It's the baseline. It is foundational. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a scientist. But like anything, there are deviations from the norm. And that does not make a person less valuable. That does not make a person less created in God's image. God's image is connected to man in the sense of mankind, not to maleness. Male and female is the way God exercised his image-creating work. And we know that we are a long way from God's creation, whether that was 6,000 years ago or 6 billion years ago. We know it's been a while, and some things have happened, and some of those things we'll talk about in two weeks when we get to the fall. But there is no perfect human being in our biology, in our psychology, in our behaviors. All of us bear the marks of being less than what we should be, and that doesn't make any of us less value, valuable. It means that we are in need of a rescue. And not some of us, but all of us. 
So if you're dealing with any of those issues, that doesn't make you less of a human being created in God's image. But for all of us, God's creation of us in his image and male and female says a lot about how we shape relationships with each other and how we wrestle with ethics in the 21st century. So what should we make of God's image and being made in it? In the ancient world, a king would set up images of himself, representations of himself throughout his realm in which he ruled as markers of his rule, as signs of his authority. And likewise, images of various deities, we might call them idols, could be scattered across a realm as monuments of the greatness of that deity. And what Genesis 1 is saying is that we human beings are that image. We are the markers of God's rule and greatness. And as we multiply, as we fill the earth, we are spreading out God's image, marking off the earth and and perhaps the cosmos as belonging to this creator God rather than worshiping gods who indwell idols. We are called to worship a God who cannot be contained by idols but has stamped each of us with something of his greatness and his glory. More than that, we'll, we'll see next week that God designed a perfect habitation, a, a garden or perhaps an orchard for us in a place called Eden. But that's a small territory. And outside the garden, the vast untamed earth still existed. But as we subdue and have dominion over the earth and all the creatures in it, the design was for us to extend the borders of the garden and to bring all of creation under the ordered harmony and peace of the garden. We were called to exercise rule under God's rule with the same care and the same compassion and the same provision that he gives it. We've fallen far short of that. As we're reminded, every time uh, uh, the Canadian wildfires brings our COVID masks out of the closet so that we can breathe. But once again, our Failures merely point to our need for rescue, but our design points to our inherent value. Speaking of God's provision, let's let's stop just for a moment on that. In verse 29, it says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. In the, the Sumerian and the Babylonian creation stories, The gods created human beings so that human beings could be their slaves and provide them food. The biblical story once again turns that on its head. Many years later, preaching in Athens, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul would confront the pagan religions to teach them the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The God did not make human beings because he needed food. He made human beings and he gave them food. But to this day, human beings struggle with the idea that God is a provider 
and not a requisitioner. At the center of just about every man-made religion and every corruption of true religion is the idea that we must offer God something to stave off his anger or to get his blessings. And the question becomes, what must I do to be saved? What can I do to avoid God's furious anger? How can I get in on God's blessings? What do I need to do to be okay with God? And the answer to each of those questions and those like them is that you have seriously misunderstood who this God is. He doesn't need anything from you, and he will not be bargained with. There is nothing that you have to offer that is valuable enough for him to give anything in return. Nothing. But if we know we've messed up, and just look at our world, and we know we're imperfect, we feel it every day, what hope is there if there is nothing we can offer God? But God is not an Uber driver who's to come to pick you up and, and take you where you need to go. He's more like an ambulance driver who picks up and cares for the worst criminal in the city who hasn't paid a dime in taxes but still is hurt and in need of help. God is the provider. And that means that when it comes time for a rescue, God graciously, mercifully provided a rescue. And although our crimes demand a just sentence of death, in time God would take on flesh. He would live among us in the person of Jesus. And without sin or crime, Jesus voluntarily offered his life. He was not dying a death that he deserved. He was making the penalty, making the payment for the penalty people like us deserve. You cannot outgive God. He is the great provider, and he has provided a rescue by his Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know that one. Those who trust in God's provision will find that it is more than satisfactory. And those who try to find their way to the spiritual hospital their own way will never make it. I have to talk about the seventh day. When they put the numbers in our Bibles to help us, they made a mistake by putting the division where they did. The seventh day goes with the first six. It does not go with what comes next. But here's what the text says. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host with them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God rested. He rested. He worked six days and then he rested. He rested from his creation work. God, of course, still exercises rule every day over creation. He is not in bed. He's finished with creation but he's not slack. But there's three implications here. 
at least three. I'll give you three. One, God's work was truly very good, like he said. It was complete. Our work, however good it is, is always good enough at best. But God rested because he was finished. Time was no object to him. He's eternal. He was before the beginning. But it was done. And it was very good. And so he rested. And we see in that that God is not like us. And we see in this that God's word in creation is magnificent. Even in the mess that our world is, is, our world is today, the Bible still routinely points us to the marvels of creation and God's work in those things to point us to this marvelous God. Unlike us, he left nothing undone. And that gives us confidence that he will leave nothing undone in us either. So we can trust him. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God finishes his works. God's work of salvation, like his work of creation, will be finished. Two, the days may not have been exactly 24 hours, but they were representative of 24-hour days and the seven days representative of a human week. That becomes the basis for the fact that we, too, need rest. And we need work. We don't rest simply because we're weak although that's true, we rest because God rested. And in resting, even though our work is not done and never done, we show that we trust in God whose work was done and promises to provide for us. We work not simply because we need income or food. We work because God worked, because God designed us for work, and because work itself is good and it honors him. So we are, in a small way, fulfilling our mandate to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it if we are doing any legitimate work at all. And sometimes the work is directly related to that. Sometimes it's very indirectly. But if it in any way contributes to that, it is good. Three, there's something missing. Do you notice it? Six times we've read there was morning, there was evening, or there was evening, there was morning the first day, there was evening, there was morning the second day, there was evening, there was morning the third day, and so on. But where is it? It's missing on the seventh day. It's another pointer to the fact that something a little less than literal is going on here, a little more than literal is going on here. Uh, the seventh day has not ended. The seventh day has not ended. God is still enjoying his rest. The author of the book of Hebrews notes this. And he looks ahead. He, he looks ahead to God's anger with the Israelites in the wilderness. 
as the psalmist writes in Psalm 95, speaking as for God at that time, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. My rest. God's rest is something they could enter or not enter by faith. Even as the Israelites failed to trust God and died in the wilderness and did not enter the rest of the promised land. But surely there must be something better than the land of Canaan, this little strip of territory on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea, because it was hundreds of years later that the psalmist pleaded with God's people who were living in Canaan, living in the land of promise, to not harden their hearts against God and so fail to enter God's rest. For those of us who are Christians, here's what it meant to the writer of Hebrews and what it means to us. The journey to the promise of God's rest is long and arduous, but those who remain faithful to Christ will see it. Do not lose sight of the prize. Do not be fearful of the monsters in our world, and there are many. Do not pay attention to the stars or the fortune tellers, to the political pundits or the stock market watchers. Don't put your attention there. Don't set your hope there. Do not get lost in the lies that you are merely an animal. You may or may not be an animal, but you are the only one that is made in God's image, and so you are not merely an animal. Do not get lost along the way with thinking this or that power might do you in. You serve the God who made those powers. Don't wander off looking for what you think you need. You serve a God who provides your every need. All of these things are idols, they're false gods, they're demons, and demons masquerading as angels of light. But God rules over all with his sovereign hand. And after he made them, he rested. And his rest is our confidence that there is a place for us to call home if we just keep trusting. I'm sorry, I've only scratched the surface, but I have not said nearly enough, and, I, and, I've, and I've probably said too much for some of you, but, but this is the God that is. This is the God who made us and, and everything else. He is the focus of these verses. We come in for an honorable mention, but make no mistake that this history is about God, the God who has no rival, has no equal. He has no parallel, no competitor, no threat. He speaks and even inanimate chaos has to obey him. He orders and he forms and governs with wisdom and power. And he has called us to a unique task in that. And rightfully, he owns us. Will you trust him? Let's pray. Father, you have... Um, blessed us and, and graced us with, with truths that are 
too glorious for us to understand, maybe too good for us to deserve to know. Help us to not miss them in our familiarity with them. Help us to not grow tired of the old things. But to dig deeper and deeper in them and and, and to to, to send our roots down into them and, and grow strong in them. Give us a glimpse of who you are and what you're like. And may we fall before you in worship and in recognition that we need to be rescued. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you'd like, to to stand and praise this God once again.